podcast on this Sunday evening. Uh, sorry, I lie. We're not on Sunday anymore. We're on Monday. On this Monday, we're on this Monday evening. Um, uh, with me tonight, as always, we have my co-host Peter Ray Ellison. Good evening, everyone. And our special guest tonight, Jonathan Green. Hello. Audio working. We're good. Yes, <laughs> we're zooming it today. We're not skyping it. We're, we're zooming it today. Um, okay, so Jonathan, who are you? What do you do? What's your thing? So my name is Jonathan Green, and I'm an author, uh, editor, and games designer. And I'm probably best known for my contribution to fighting fantasy game books, and then my own game books I've written since. Well, I've also done various time work for Games Workshop through Black Library, and also IP such as Doctor Who, Star Wars, Sonic the Hedgehog. All sorts of things. <laughs> no way. <laughs> that is a diverse list. <laughs> that really is. That's like that literally from one end to the other. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to start with that. Um, okay. I wonder how do you get go from Warhammer and fighting fantasy to Sonic the Hedgehog? Um. Basically, I started out writing for fighting fantasy, and my editor was at the time was Mark Gascoigne. He is now the publisher at Aconite Books and has been the publisher at Black Library. Um, and because of that, I then, through Mark, got a meeting of Jervis Johnson, which is how I ended up working for Games Workshop, doing colour text for their army books. So things like, I'm trying to think, was it second edition? I'm not sure now. But um, the Codex Chaos, I did stuff for that. Tyranids, um, Epic 40K, oh, uh, the Wood Elf Army book. Uh, Dark Hells, I think, was the first project I worked on, actually, back in 1994, Wow. wow. Um, so then through that, because actually it went, they went back to Mark, and Mark had done some work on the Sonic IP with some other people, and uh, Puffin wanted to, they were publishing a series of game books, and I don't know why, but various other people had written them, including James Wallace, and then it was over to Mark, and, and Mark asked if I'd co-write them with him, so he did too. So there you go, okay. in a nutshell, it was Mark okay. Gaspoin. <laughs> Mark Gosling and just Mark Gosling knowing everyone within the publishing industry. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying yeah, to he's... think because uh, I'm I'm sort of kind of looking so I'm looking through all the uh, the fighting fantasy books and stuff and I had a I had a couple of them when I was uh when I was growing up and I'm just trying to I'm just trying to pick see the which they're one. A sta- they're a staple for a certain demographic of games. Yes. They were the gateway drug for many to get into exactly. role playing. Yeah, that, um, that was very fair. Yeah, mine, mine were late in the day for the Puffin run. Um, so they're in the 50s. So a lot of people, that they weren't massive print runs, and I don't think they were reprinted, or certainly the later ones weren't. So they're quite hard to get hold of. So many people, certainly my age, probably the majority had stopped reading the series by the time I was being published. Oh, right. um, <laughs> but certainly then I, I did stuff when Wizard Books brought it back. I wrote new stories, for them, new adventures for them again. So there's then another generation of like in their 30s now, you know my stuff and then there's yet another generation coming up through but they haven't got around to republish, republishing my books yet oh, right, okay. Although, unless you're in france because there's a new edition of my pirates game book blood bones um i've forgotten the title in french but they're just releasing a new one with a brand new cover which looks quite cool the pirates yeah yeah oh well that reminds me actually i remember like they're still releasing new uh, fighting fantasy books if i recall i mean i think a few years ago uh, Sir uh, Ian Livingstone now. Yes. Um, released was it Blood of the Blood of the Zombies? Blood of the Zombies. When you say that was actually ten years ago because that no, was the thirtieth no. anniversary adventure. <sighs> so since then he's published um, the Port of Peril, uh, Assassins of Alancia, and then he's got a new one coming out this autumn to mark the fortieth anniversary. So his book is Shadow of the Giants, and Steve Jackson's also written one. Oh, nice. So that's um, Secrets of, well, I call it Salamonis, but Steve and Ian both call it Salamonis. I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation um, (laughs) because it's King Salomon. So I say uh, they're probably right. They're probably right. They created it. They're right. uh, Syrian was at the um, Games at UK Games Expo two two years, three years ago? He was was last year. Yeah. When it it came back after the gap, he was actually there last year. Uh, So he was there in 2019. Yeah, that went, that's when we interviewed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he was there 2021, but he wasn't able to make it this year. Yeah. I mean, I remember chatting to Sir Ian in 2019, and like when he'd just been uh, got a commander 
of the got with a CB got got a CBE. And yeah. so are you gonna level up and become a sir? And said, Well, I'd like to, but it's unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> and it's I'm, a major gonna, quest I'm, I'm gonna say, called it, I called it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think for a while after you got the CBE, a lot of people just started calling him Surrey and Livingstone anyway. Just on general so, principles. That they, they were prophets, obviously. <laughs> I mean, well to me to uh, to be a, he is like no, if it wasn't for um, Ian, Sir Ian or uh, Steve Jackson, then probably the UK game industry would be very different. Well, yes, because they were because well, obviously they founded Games Workshop exactly. along with John Peake, and they were the ones responsible for introducing Dungeons and Dragons to yeah. the UK well, and to Europe. Um, and they've had a hand in all sorts of classic games like Hero Quest, uh, Talisman. I love Talisman. Um, yeah. All kinds of things went. Tomb Raider. And well. Yes. Well, yeah, obviously, then with computer games since, because yeah. Ian was with IDOS, well, Domark to begin with, but yeah, IDOS, so Tomb Raider, Thief, various others. Steve was at Lionhead Studios, so things like the Fable series. Yeah, that was all yeah. part of the same company. Yeah, and they also did things like card games, and um, Steve did his phone, phone adventures. Um, that, yeah, I can't remember seeing the adverts then, but I never did them because you just thought that sounds really expensive. <laughs> I'm not sure how long the actual adventures lasted. So yeah. it maybe wasn't as, but I have to say, I didn't do it either. You know, ask the bill payers permission. I think my parents at that point thought I, you know, uh, the well, game books is one thing, but that's a step too far. I wonder yeah. if I've still got it or not, or if I've deleted it, but there was a fighting fantasy um, uh, game on. On there the, is the app. The there app, the yeah, and it's the guy. I can't remember the name of it. He's in Sherlock. He play, He's Sherlock Holmes. He plays. Um, he's in loads of things. You're, oh god, I'm just gonna have to find what, is, what he's. Well, called. if it's Sherlock Holmes, that won't be fighting fantasy. But um, no, no, no. They, it's it's, it's not. No, no, no. It, it the, uh, the the actor, the guy who who narrates it, uh, was from oh. Sherlock Holmes. Everything right, 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 Let me try and find who. That's not oh. the app. It's not an app. It's, it's basically. It's like a. Um, it, it's basically uh, an app where you do a fighting fantasy thing. So it's it's the oh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to find because there's one. um there is a video one of uh, Death Trap Dungeon Death yeah. with Dungeon. Eddie Marston reading it. Yes, that's it. That's, that's it. Ah. that's it. That's yeah. it. Hollywood favorite for, for playing everything from Russian scientists in Hobson Shaw movies. It, yeah, uh, Eddie Marston. That's the fellow. Yeah, well, he yeah. was on TV recently about the boat, the thief, his wife. Oh, and the canoe, or whatever it was. That was oh, yeah. That yeah, too. but the but, but canoe, so he just randomly then went yeah. off and his wife claimed, uh, yeah, life insurance. Yeah. That was weird. But yeah, I mean, anyway, enough about certain. <laughs> How did you get involved in fighting fantasy? So I was the perfect demographic when the first book was released 40 years ago, The Wall of Kafartop <sighs> Mountain. Um, I was still 10 years old, not quite 11. And I think I'd been taken into town, into Bath, where I lived nearby at the time, uh, to buy school shoes or clothes or something. And um, my mum at the end said, no, we can go to Waterstones. And I remember going in and it was on one of the table displays and it just looked like nothing I'd seen before because you didn't normally have the text of the book in the middle of the cover. It was at the top of the cover. And I picked it up and saw Russ Nicholson's gruesome illustrations and the rest, as they say, is history. But um, from reading them, um, I just... I loved them. I think at one point my parents thought you should probably, dare I say it, grow out of this now. And my grand certainly said, when do you think you'll grow out of monsters? And I'm 50 now. So <laughs> um, I think that answers that question. But uh, then I started trying to write my own. And again, from about the age of 12, real pastiches, most things never finished, maybe no longer than 30 paragraphs. And I drew them as much as I wrote them. But I kept going and eventually the drawings dropped away and I just did writing. And when I uh, left school, I actually wrote to Puffin Books saying, you know, how do you go about contributing a game book? And I got a letter back from Mark Gaston explaining the process of submitting a pitch. And I gave it a go. And he was very kind and wrote lots of constructive comments, but it wasn't good enough. Then I had a, another go at it. So I think this is during my first year at university. So when I finished my A-levels, I did my first attempt at an adventure. Um, I think I rewrote it at Christmas and it still wasn't getting any better. So I just jumped that. And then I tried something completely different, but kind of pillaged some of the better bits from the original idea. And at that point, Mark came back saying, it's still not there yet. This is much better. Then it passed must with him. 
So he then sent it to Penguin Books. They wanted some more changes. And eventually, at the start of the summer holidays after my second year at uni, I got my first commission. And that was 30 years ago. Wow. Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> well, you would have got your, uh, to be honest, because I think my first fighting fantasy book was Master of Chaos. Um, Number 41. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, in 1990, yeah. so sort of in and around the time you were just uh, about sort of kind of coming on board, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, I remember sort of seeing that because we used to have in primary school, you used to have this sort of kind of like, um, there was like this book club that used to come in and you could get sort of, you know, yeah. you, you go in and you sort of kind of look at books and things like that. And I always kind of went for the ones that you could get like free stuff with or, you know, look cool. And I just saw this one with like a dragon, sort of like sort of two yeah. dragon thing in front of it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to have that and stuff. And uh, I sort of kind of got it. And then I didn't realize what it was when I first started, re- like when I got it. So I sort of picked it up and I was really confused because I was like, wait a minute. So I have to turn pages to go to different things. And then, and then it all clicked and I was like, wow, this is brilliant. Ended up dying yeah. a lot. but then- <laughs> and, uh, No, I think, think like everything else, like, you always remember your first time. And mm-hmm. for me, it was um, uh, Port, oh, City of Thieves, not Port. City right, of yes. Thieves. Yes, Port and Black Sun. Yes, exactly. That's why I was thinking Port Black Sun. Yes. Yeah. But City of Thieves are fantastic. I still got it upstairs. Yeah. Very battered. And, um, but yeah, it's a great book. It's such a great story. And like, I rec- my daughter uh, is now coding in a computer science class, a text adventure game. So gave her. Um, <laughs> the fighting fantasy book to you. okay you want to text ideas for text adventure game here you go have a read of this <laughs> and cool. an absolute blast um but yeah i mean one thing as well is you know with um ebooks and yeah. apps on phones you know fighting fantasy seems to kind of undergoing, undergoing a renaissance right now because you know it's a, a different medium but still quite you know almost designed for fighting fantasy in a way yeah, and also um, Scholastic Books now have the license to publish the paperbacks okay. in, a, in a new format, but um, Tin Man Games are publishing kind of the original edition yeah. with the original artwork and things, some re- recolored through their Fighting Fantasy Classics app, and they're adding new titles all the time. I think the, the most recent one was Freeway Fighter, oh, kind of Mad Max yeah. adventure, which actually starts in, I think the plague hits in 2022. And, in July, so not far <laughs> off now. Oh, heck. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, must be Freeway Fighter is one of my favourites because cars and guns and, you know, dark yeah. future. Uh, but also, I mean, another one of my favourites was uh, Robot Commando. Yes. Because Robots and dinosaurs. Mechs, mechs, mechs and dinosaurs, you know. Yes. I'm happy with that. Yeah, that definitely had a, came into my thinking when I was writing my re- most recent Ace game book which is Ronin 47, which has got mechs versus kaiju, because oh. I did think Robot Commando was always popular. <laughs> I, saw the, I saw the artwork when we were at your, we were at your booth. It was so, oh, yeah. so nice. It was beautiful. Yeah. So nice. Like, Pete was flicking through it, and I was like, that's oh, absolutely amazing. So good. Yeah. Yeah, Neil Gooch has done a brilliant job, and Leno Grady on colours as well. So, yeah, the hardback is full colour. Also, like you know, the scaling of it, like you know, when you're looking at the artwork, you, you got a great sense of scale. This is just like the, you, know, you always got something in the picture to kind of give it a demonstration yeah. of the, you know, the comparative sizes of the of the objects and the, yeah, Neil was very box. good at that. So he had I sort of described um, one of them crashing through the wall of the base, and he added a few engineers running away. And again, it makes such a difference to the actual effect of that image. Yeah, I mean, and when you kind of look at it, you don't really see the engineers at first. Because you just focused on that, you know, the you know the robot crashing through the wall. But even so, even though you don't, you, know, you don't cognitively realize you can see yeah. the engineers. You just see that get, get that sense of skill that you know. So it's yeah. If they really weren't there, it wouldn't be the same. Not the same. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, also one thing about uh, Rolling Forty Seven is that you know it's unlike Robot Commander, where you could go from mech to mech to mech. You see, you kind of focus on one mech, aren't you? Yeah, I, I did wonder about giving that as an option, but part of the point is that the Ronin 47 of the adventure is your mech, because it starts off their samurai mech, so that's how they're classified, and then it's based loosely on the legend of the 47 Ronin, 
So when this act of betrayal happens and your master's killed, you become a, it's, it's a Ronin, so hence Ronin 47. So rather than having the option of changing mechs, I made it, you can customize your mech quite heavily before you even start the adventure. You can decide, because uh, you, you have different stats are paired off. So you've got, um, okay, right now. So <laughs> suddenly gone blank. I think it's speed, oh, I'm trying to think. Anyway, there's yeah the melee and the armor. I think paired off against each other. So the more heavily armored it is, the, oh no, sorry, that's it. The speed and the armor. So the more likely armored it is, um, that the quicker it can move, and vice versa. And then you've got its melee abilities and um, its artillery abilities, and they're paired off. So you can have it right down the middle. So it's a real uh, kind of everyman of a robot, or you can tear it one way or the other. And then there's different add-ons you can collect during the adventure. So different upgrades, which you can add to your mech, which will affect their different um, stats in different ways as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the fighting fantasy system is, you know, at its core, very simple. It's strength, stamina, look. Yeah. But it's, but it's simplicity means it's so flexible. Yes. I mean, when I was writing fighting fantasy books, I would try and play with that idea. Um, and often I'd add a different stat somewhere in there. But there is actually quite a lot you can do with just those three. And I remember things like, I think it's in Death Trap Dungeon, where Ian Livingstone had that you come across a fountain which you can drink from and a witch cast a spell over it. So it means that it's healing, but you also lose luck points at the same time. So little quirks like that make it quite fun. Yeah, I found when reading like the, the multitude variety of uh, fighting fantasy book, Ian Livingston would kind of always went into the law of the world. He was very focused on Port Blacksand and the, yes. the, its realm. Yeah. Whilst um, uh, um, Steve, like his name again, Steve Jackson. Thank you, Steve Jackson. I apologise. <laughs> uh, Steve Jackson would all kind of look at see try new things with the rules. I mean, like he brought yeah. in the sanity me mechanics in House of Hell. And also, Steve wasn't really interested in, in repeating what he'd done before. He always wanted to do something new. So, hence, you know, he did, obviously, co-wrote Warlock of Far Top Mountain with Ian. And then he did his first solo one, which is your classic fantasy castle adventure, Citadel of Chaos. But then for number four, he went into space. He did the first science yeah. fiction on Starship Traveller. Um, then I'm trying to think, I think the next one of his was House of Hell, which is your classic horror film set in the real world. So, yeah, he was always doing something different. And then he did Appointment with Fear, which was superheroes and Creature of Havoc, where you are the monster for the first time. And yeah, then that, he did the Sorcery yeah. Epic, where they all Creature. linked together over four books with the complicated yeah. magic system. Yeah, I, I remember Creature of Havoc was that you played the monster, but also there's one neat little mechanic, which was if you rolled um, two dice of the same value, like two ones or two twos, you instantly killed the person you were killing. Yeah. Because you're such a massive monster and you've got, exactly. it, came, it never describes what you look like. You see on things in some of the illustrations, there's hulking shadows, which is you. And it mentions about tough scales on your feet or being hairy or sharp claws or all the rest of it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a good, a cool concept. So you had yeah. um, Ronin 47 was on Kickstarter last year, was it? I'm just looking at the, the Kickstarter. That's right. Yes. I think it's probably about a year ago because... I was hoping to deliver the books this month, but yeah. it's not quite gone to print. Um, it's it's ready. It's getting quotes from printers and things, which is a bit tricky at the moment because obviously all the prices have gone up since I ran the Kickstarter. I've heard that, like paper prices and stuff are sort of kind of going up. When yeah. we had... Um, Massively. Night, <laughs> Massively. Night, Nightfall yeah. Games on, they were talking about sort of um, you know, paper prices and things like that. Um how what have, what have you found sort of with the, with the Kickstarter? Because we've talked to a lot of people, especially when we we're at UK Games Expo, uh, all the different experiences with Kickstarter. Um, some good, some bad, um, some tragic. Um, how did you how did yeah. you find it? Yeah, um, a steep learning curve. I mean, to begin with, the very first one I launched was to write a history of fighting fantasy game books. You are the hero. Yes, and I that's a brilliant book. I pitched it to the publisher Time and. They, I, I pitched various ideas for the 30th anniversary and each one I came, they thought they'd say no. And then every other idea I came back with, they said, your ideas get more expensive all the time. So the idea <laughs> of a coffee table book, they just said was too expensive to do. And I could understand it because it's a very niche market. But then um, a friend of mine who's also in publishing 
said, have you heard of Kickstarter? And I don't think I had at that point, but it was only in the States and it was coming to the UK in October 2012. And one of the first projects that I was aware of launching on it was Turn to 400, which was a documentary film about fighting fantasy. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't make its funding. I think they wanted to get £40,000, they raised about fifteen. At which point I thought, there are people out there, there's £15,000 worth of funding, which they didn't spend on the film, and there are people who might be interested in this. So I, I pitched the idea of the book. But the trap I fell into with that one was where, as soon as you kind of hit another £1,000, you offer another stretch goal, and it just becomes more and more to deliver. Hmm. And the other problem I found was, I thought I knew a lot about fighting fantasy until I really started to research it. It didn't matter that I'd written for the adventures. There was so much I didn't know. And I'd interview somebody and they'd say, oh, have you spoken so-and-so? So I'd go off down that rabbit hole. And, and as a result, the book tripled in size from what it was meant to be. Um, and it was about nine months late, which really in the scheme of things, a Kickstarter doesn't sound too nothing. bad. It's nothing. I've had ones that have no. been four but, years late. But people, so. <laughs> people were getting a bit miffed. Um, but the good thing was once the book came out, they liked the books. They forgot about the Kickstarter running late and they just liked the final product. And also they backed to, I think they paid £25 for a hardback, which was then on sale for 40 quid. So, I mean, they, it was a win-win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a fantastic. That, I, have, I, have, yeah, I remember the edge lit. Like eight, yes. year, eight years ago, I got uh, you, well, you gave me a copy, and um, <laughs> after after I did that article for the BBC about fighting fantasy. Oh yes, that's brilliant. Yes. And yeah, because I was talking to you about that, and yeah, it's a beautiful book, fantastic book, and you you were kind of like have a you know a breakdown of the entire history as well, like you no know, in um, annotations about every of the fighting fantasy book to date. Yeah, it's a massive yeah. book, but really, really so good. Thank you. Yeah. And oh yeah, so we were talking about Kickstarter, weren't we? We got back on yeah, Spidey. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so after that, I, I, I'm a bit <laughs> I, I do forget things, I'm afraid, but the next one I did was the first of my own ace game books, which wasn't a thing at the time. They weren't called ace game books at all. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to do an interactive retelling of Alice in Wonderland. Um, and I thought I'd try crowdfunding it. And I wanted to do something similar to Fighting Fancy, but not the same. And um, I'd, I'd done some other uh, adaptations of Alice. We used, I was influenced by it in some short stories I wrote, particularly one for my steampunk setting of Pax Britannia for Baden Books. I wrote a, a short story called White Rabbit. Um, and from that, I thought, again, this is something I, I think I could do something fun with. So I went off and did that. And again, I was lucky in that that funded. But then I have had projects which, had, which haven't funded. Um, but generally, I've found... I, I've tried all sorts of different things, like I did for one of them, um, The Wicked Wizard of Oz. I had, the, if you back the Kickstarter, you got these bonus characters in the book, which I thought, well, that's a nice idea. That's a nice way of rewarding people who've backed the Kickstarter. But of course, if you then buy the book later, having never heard about the Kickstarter, and you find there's two characters you can't access, that doesn't go down very well either. Yeah. So it's always that tricky balance of giving people a <laughs> reason never to win. the Kickstarter, because <laughs> without that, you couldn't produce a product. But then equally, you've got to make it fair to those people who buy it um, possibly later on. So I'm, I've always tried to offer some sort of little add-on, um, some sort of download or, or little gifts and things. And I'm trying to simplify that because, again, with the whole add-on structure, it makes it a little tricky to deliver because I don't use fulfillment houses. I do it all myself. So it can become a bit of a logistical headache. Weird, so everything comes to your house then? <laughs> yes. Wow. So that's one, of, that's one of the downsides. And I think, oh, I can't do it like this again. But, you know, and the endless trips to the post office and printing out the labels and all the rest of it. And people getting grumpy in the queue behind you. But then it's still, for me, the best way to crowdfund or to, to fund books at all. So, so part, of you, part of you doesn't want to be too successful because your house <laughs> won't be able to take yeah. it. <laughs> yes. Although I have now started doing... Um, RPGs, which are delivered through uh, drive-through RPG. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and it, with that, I try and make sure that I give people effectively free content, which then will then go on sale for the people later. Um, but for backing the Kickstarter in the first place, so what, uh, I've done one of those, which delivered. The other one has been delayed. It's Hairot, but uh, this year it will be out. What do you finally think? I know the the piles of Kickstarter uh, copies ready to be shipped out. Oh, my wife takes a deep breath and encourages me to keep going. <laughs> yes. That's, so that's lovely. I always have a, you know, when they deliver the pallet of books, boxes to the garage, and it's like the kids' bikes get shoved to the back and things. And then, 
it, it really is a case of trying to do it as quickly as possible so that partly the backers get their rewards nice and quickly, um, but also so that it's not cluttering up the place because we live in a flat. So between yeah. the garage and the flat, it, it does take yeah. over. Have you We've seen that? Up in uh, have you seen that now the post officer are offering um, parcel delivery collected from your door? Uh, yes, I have. Yes. So I was wondering, though, it's like, instead of you, you have to kind of take all of it to the um, post office, have them come to you. you know, that's, I, I, do, yeah. I, I do that when I'm selling games and things like that, sort of stuff, you know, as you can see, the, the mess behind me. And sort of like if I'm selling <laughs> yeah. uh, a load of sort of games and things like that, as I am now, I, I sort of, if it's a bit, if there's too many to go, I just get DPD or somebody to rock up to my door and then uh, get them to ship it off so I don't have to sort of kind of go down to the post office. Yeah. It's a lot easier. I'm loving. I'm just. I'm going through this Kickstarter. This whole and it's just the, the artwork is just so phenomenal. I love it. Just on the base on the on the artwork itself, it's just so nice. So, how successful was the Kickstarter for Running Forty Seven? Um, I'm trying to think now. Uh, it raised more than its target. You... It, it raised its target in a satisfying amount of time. I'm trying to think. It was about eleven thousand and something. Was it that? Yeah, one? twelve thousand. You just got just under twelve thousand pledged. Yeah, two hundred eighty-nine yeah. backers. Yeah. yeah, so it wasn't um, the, the biggest of the game books I've done was Dracula: Curse of the Vampire, though with the T-shirts and nice. product placement. Um, because obviously the, the way it's become is it starts off with Alice because I thought that'd be a fun thing to do, and then people said, "What are you going to do next? You're going to do through the Looking Glass." And I thought, well, spoilers ahead, but if you read um, Alice's Nightmare in Wonderland, the first one, you'll realise that through the Looking Glass and various other things are all included in that that book. So kind of that was Alice done tick. Um, so then I thought, what else could you do? And I thought about uh, Alan Moore's uh, Lost Girls, and that oh. had Alice, Dorothy Gale, and Wendy Darling. Um, obviously, if anybody knows about the content of Lost Girls, my game books are nothing like that. But I did think it was kind of a, a quasi-trilogy of classic children's stories. So I then did Wicked Wizard of Oz next, but where Alice is a bit steampunk, that was more diesel punk. And then I did um, Neverland, Here Be Monsters, because I'm not a fan of Peter Pan. Um, but everything's better with dinosaurs. So I merged it with Conan Doyle's The Lost World. And I probably enjoyed writing that one the most of all of those three uh, and was most sort of pleased with the results. So it's pirates versus dinosaurs versus the end of the world. Um, yeah. And that, that I'm now dispatched. <laughs> so, yeah. So obviously it depended how popular the source material was. And having done that, I thought, what else could I do? And years ago, I wanted to do a Beowulf game book. So it made sense to do that next. And there was certainly a demographic. It's been interesting because... There are people who've bought the books who've never read game books before mm -hmm. and they bought them because they are Alice or Oz or Neverland. And there are possibly some of my original readers from Fighting Fancy who've been put off the other ones because they consider it to be twee and childish. But as soon as you read the books, you know they're not like that because that's not what I want to read. Um, but I've then kind of gone with the more adult, darker stories. So I've done Beowulf. I did... Um, then, then I did Twas the Crampus Night Before Christmas, which again sounds twee and childish, but it isn't. There was a, a great review which described it as a, a mixture of camp characters, humour and genuine moments of horror. So that <laughs> um, yeah, that's just British horror for you. You always get yeah. sort of like, yeah. you know, like uh, like uh, one of my favourite British horror films um, is Dog Soldiers and stuff. And yes. it's funny, oh, yeah, yeah. but it's it's terrifying as well. It's, just yeah. sort of, it's a good sort of mix. Yeah. So, and then I did um, Dracula, Curse of the Vampire. I wrote that during lockdown. It was the largest game book I've written to date, with a thousand sections and about 1,000, no, sorry. Yeah, 170,000 words, I think, in total. So it's it's a beast, yeah. as you can see. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the average game book, like Final Fantasy, was about 400 sections. 400 like. sections, yeah. And they kind of range between 30 to 40,000 words. The ones yeah. I wrote very quickly got longer and were close to 50,000, but you could get at least three fighting fantasy game books out of that. So that... more for me. <laughs> so why do you... Two questions. How come yours was a thousand sections long and why was fighting fantasy almost set to a strict 400 sections? The 400 was pure chance. Apparently, okay. uh, when they got to the end, it was 399. So they wanted to round it up. So... I can't remember now if it was either, or they either added the final page where you turn to, you see the Warlock's treasure, or they added um, another section which effectively just says turn to something else in it. 
And it then, it wasn't ever meant to be the standard. And there are books which don't follow it. Um, Freeway Fight is shorter, Creature of Havoc's longer. Um, I wrote one called Night of the Necromancer, and that's longer, as was Charlie Higson's Gates of Death. I'm trying to think now if Rihanna Pratchett's was longer, I think it might have been. Um, and things like the sorcery books, they weren't all the same length either, and they, they varied massively. And I think each one got longer than one before. And Crown of Kings was 800 sections. But one of the things I do with the Ace Game books is that because they're based on existing properties, you can play as different characters from the story. So in this one, I knew I wanted to do, you could be Jonathan Harker or Mina Murray or Dr. Seward. And then I thought I got into practice. It started actually with The Wicked Wizard of Oz, but was better done in Neverland where you can play as the baddie. So in Wicked Wizard of Oz, although technically you're not the baddie, you can play as the Wicked Witch. And she's not misunderstood. She is a Wicked Witch. <laughs> um, and in Neverland, you can play as Captain Hook, who is as ruthless as a pirate captain would need to be. So in this one, you can play as Dracula. So if you play as any of the vampire hunters, you can swap your character throughout the book uh, to try and defeat the Count. And if you're Dracula himself, you have to work to stop the vampire hunters, but your story starts in the 15th century before you're a vampire. So I always knew I wanted to do that. And it's just in the writing. I thought it'd be about 800 sections, but just writing the vampire hunters had taken me that far. So then there are 200 unique sections for Dracula's adventure. Wow, okay, that that sounds massively complicated. I mean, how did you kind of keep track of like yeah. your of yeah. like <laughs> how? Yeah, it's, it's that's the one thing. How do you? Because it's not like a normal book where you have no. you're going to be jumping back and forth a lot, and there's going to be different things. How do you, how do you comprehend that? How do you sort of uh, keep yourself map it out? Yeah, how do you map it out? Yeah, I know people always ask me, um, oh no, what software do you use? And the answer is, I use Word, and that's it. It's all old school. I do it all by hand. So um, there's lots of flow charts. All right. So I start by breaking it down. Dracula took a long time to break down because I did base it on the structure of the original novel. It's probably the one that's closest to the original, but there are additional bits. So if you know the story, there'll still be surprises. And there's references to other horror films and hammer horror films and things and other classic works of Gothic literature. And I added things like uh, Dracula's Guest is the short story published posthumously which many people think was the excised opening chapter of Dracula. So that's in there. Um, I restored the original ending to the book as well. So I start by doing the very basic breakdown of the plot. And because of that, because it's an epistry novel, you've effectively got most of the time, it's three strands running through it, which is Harker, Mina and Seward. Although you do get other bits like telegrams and newspaper reports and things like that. Um, but so I, I have a, an overview generally of how the plot's going to work down, break down. And then I take the individual scenes within that and break them down again. So I have lots and lots of pages of hand-drawn flowcharts. Um, so having written the adventure, I don't write it muddled up either. I write it in order. So section one will go to two and three and so on. Because when I, I have a very specific process breaking it up. So um, I try to make sure that the illustrations are evenly placed throughout the book. So to do that, I, I do it all at the end when I assign numbers. You'll have some sections which are the answers to puzzles or converting words into codes. So again, you need to have particular paragraphs reserved for that. With the Ace Game books, different characters have different icons. So when you come to a section which has your icon, you know you have to deduct or add a certain number to turn to a unique section for you. So if you're meaner in one bit, if you're reading as Parker or Stewart, they'll have the same section, but then you'll have uh, Mina's icon, which is, I think is the bat, get that right? And if you turn to that one, you get a different bit of information. Um, so again, that all has to be accounted for. And then also with something this big, I don't really like the, I, I think it's awkward people turning backwards and forwards massively, especially if they've got their fingers stuck in you know, the five finger bookmark. So I try and make sure that most turn twos are actually quite close to each other. All right, yeah, so yeah. there's all sorts of factors that I, which is, you know, I just make, make it harder for myself, basically. And again, when it comes to renumbering, I print out sheets of numbers and I do it all by hand. And then I cut and paste to change the numbers in the God, manuscript. So There's probably people tearing their hair out there. But yeah, it sounds so much more complicated. <laughs> no twine, no software, just, yeah. One thing I want to ask is, like, does this sounds like, you know, um, like having a thousand sections means that you just, you can accommodate the different uh, plot strands for each character. 
Yes. So ha- approximately how many sections is it per character in terms of completion? You're going to ask me how many you actually... That, I can't remember because I, I didn't. I did write them sort of synchronously. So I did yeah. Parker's opening scenes and I'd moved to the bit in Whitby. Then I'd moved to another... And they, um, Seaward in the asylum and so on and backwards and forwards. So I was kind of in my own head. It was still moving forward chronologically. It was only Dracula who I didn't write anything until I got right to the end. Yeah. So then I made sure that when you are Dracula, if there are scenes which have them in the book, you still encounter those scenes, but from your point of view. Um, so I don't know exactly. I think it worked out pretty evenly. Probably Mina has a slightly shorter story. And if you're going to ask me how many of the sections you'd actually read in a playthrough, I've got no idea. <laughs> Okay. Um, how did obviously it sounds like um, these days game books uh, are based purely on like the existing uh, IP that is now in public domain? Now they are currently yes, because yeah. it's becoming a thing which I'm known for, and most people seem to like. There are some people who don't, um, and I can understand both points of view. But um, economics come into it as well. So yeah. selling a known brand, uh, particularly because although it's a series, every book is a standalone adventure. It's not like Lone Wolf where you're carrying on, you know, one story over many adventures or fighting fantasy where it's all one world. And you might encounter different characters or same characters in different books. These are all unique. So the fact that the thing which ties them all together is they're based on existing IP is a people now kind of got used to that idea. So they, they asked me at events like Expo, well, what are you doing next? Which, and I'm always very tempted to say this and the other because I've got so many ideas and how I do my take. But because it takes me, on average, I write one a year, I keep my cards quite close to my chest. That's, that's um, quite prolific. But yes, I mean, some of, them are more, some of them are more original than others. So Twas is very loosely based on a visit from Sir Nicholas, the poem, who on Twas the Night Before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature of stone, not even a mouse. That's the very loose premise. And then there's lots of other Christmas legends and folklore. So, but the story is effectively mine. And again, Ronin 47, the legend of the 47 gives a very vague outline to the story, but most of it, you know, like the whole reason why it's, it's set in the future and it's post-apocalypse and all sorts of things. So, so that's all me. And again, one of the ones, I keep telling people it's going to be the next one. At the moment, I'm not quite sure, but I want to do a weird Western, okay. which would have characters to Mark Twain books, but wouldn't be based particularly on any Mark Twain story and would be effectively original plot, just featuring Thomas Hoare and Huckleberry Finn. And, and Sounds others. a bit like a leave extraordinary gentleman. Yes, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that would be more, yeah, a good example because it's it's borrowing those characters and putting yeah. them in my own story. And but partly it's, it means by doing that, I can stick to the rules that it's still an existing IP. <laughs> it's not just completely out there and original. Yeah, because Ronnie Voice sounds one with like the loosest possible interpretation of the original IP. Because I don't yeah. think I don't think Max and Keiji were in the original text. No, not in the way. Well, I had I did have fun because all of the kaiju are named after um, various yokai and mythological creatures from Japanese folklore. Nice. So, yeah. What's the what sort of eras sort of kind of do you favor or do you have sort of, you know, is this sort of kind of, um, the, well, I suppose a lot of it is sort of the older sort of, uh, steampunk type or that the fantasy side, is that your sort of kind of your, your thing or, uh, do you prefer? It, it's a real mix to be honest. It's the idea at the time, which excites me the most. So I, I could tell you, <laughs> I don't want to give the ideas away though, but, um, there's all sorts of genres, which I've got, ideas for and I want to touch on and how I'd retell particular properties in that way so you know while I'm doing the weird western one that'll be what's getting me excited then I'll be doing possibly another 19th century one um I suppose yeah Victorian gothic literature is something I'm quite fond of have a soft spot for and been influenced by have you ever done any of the Cthulhu mythos stuff or well that's again um I've got a pitch in with somebody but i can't say more about that oh, okay. but uh, definitely but the, the annoying thing is i've got three different cthulhu ideas based using different properties so i think probably doing all three would be a bit <laughs> just annoy people but if one think, doesn't come uh, off i'll do one of the other ones and also the, the ip around well the copyright issue around lovecraft and cthulhu is massively complicated 
Why is that? Yeah, and it's rather vague as well. Generally, it's accepted that if um, Lovecraft came up with it, you're okay. It's all the others around it, where and it's who invented what. Yeah. And certainly there are authors, I'm trying to think of an example now, the Bayaki, is it, in the festival? I don't think they're called Bayaki in that story. I think it was August Derlath who did more about them, but effectively it's kind of taken that Lovecraft created them and, and the, somebody else named them later. So, yes, I've been very careful not to get too crazy. Or if you do make references, you can make it vague enough that nobody's going to sue you. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like, Brian Lumley came along and created the uh, Titus yeah. Crow and the whole Dreamlands uh, series. Yeah. And then you also got Chaosium with their Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and all the... Yeah, so it's, uh, I stay well clear of that. It's, it's things like, um, with all of them, I go back to the source material. So yeah. with Dracula, for example, you know, he's not a misunderstood romantic hero. He is a grave leech who will drain your life force to stay alive. And he's not in love with Mina. He drinks her blood out of spite because the others are trying to kill him. And that's how he is in my book. It's not It's not Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. You wouldn't You wouldn't pitch sort of having having worked for Black Library, um, you wouldn't sort of pitch a, a like a, a 40K sort of, uh, uh, sort of one of these? Uh, I've, of? I've written one that they did them. Um, about 10 years ago but that they... they did four adventure game books and I wrote two of them oh, right, oh, no, so I didn't know that. they were only available as direct exclusive or sold at events ah, so very right. few people have got copies um, and unfortunately you'd go into shops and say to the manager and they'd never even heard of them so possibly the less said about that the better but one of them I wrote was a vampire one and that was called Shadows of Sylvania and I still think it's probably one of the best game books I've written um, and when they stopped printing them, there was the opportunity to buy them print on demand. And I bought 10 and I gave them away as rewards for the Alice Kickstarter. And I could have bought 100 and sold them for an absolute fortune there. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. One, one sold recently for, I think it was £280 on eBay. And it was £13 to buy brand new. Like, I, had they no, are I, so had rare. I had no idea. Like, I had oh. no idea. No. That's weird. Why? Well, you think sort of Games Workshop, the PR machine they, they are, they would sort of, you know... License and market it out. Yeah, but there you well, go. Well, I mean, Games Workshop's business is selling toy soldiers. Everything else is just an offshoot of that or to sell toy soldiers. Now, there's only rule books and things. And, and rule books and are the, the toy pe- games. pay toy soldiers. <laughs> yeah, and again, the novels, you know, it's hoping to inspire people to go into Games Workshop when they're there, they'll pick up some more space screens. It's, so um, I think that at the time, um, there was somebody there who championed them, and that's why they happened at all. Um but yeah, yeah, I mean, they they make, they don't need to worry about game books to make their business a success. <laughs> That's I, I think they probably consider it a distraction. You know, what basically when that, when everybody's got three D printers and they can't sell toy soldiers anymore, <laughs> game books may be the, the 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 future for them. Knows, oh, no, they'll knows. just sell STL files. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no. but, yeah, but I, mean, I mean, I think one thing that was telling, especially UK Games Expo, was for years, Games Workshop never. Uh, interacted. We get, they never had a presence at the UK Games Expo, but now they have. Well, they've gone through a massive... Oh, they're one of the major sponsors, yeah. Yeah, they've yeah. gone through a massive change-up, though, because you can see... Uh, I can't remember who left. I uh, can't remember his name. They basically had... A, Do you mean Tom Kirby? Yeah, I think when he... Change of CEO. Is it Kevin Roundtree now? Yeah, yeah. So basically when the CEO changed, yeah. they basically started... Because they got rid of all their social media. Like, I remember they got rid of all their social media. They got rid of, like, you couldn't talk to the press. You couldn't... They wouldn't talk to the press. They wouldn't do any... Like, they were so sort of, like, backward in a sort of very sort of social media savvy sort of kind of... Or at least emerging community. They were, like, completely not embracing it. And then he left. New fellow comes in. Warhammer community, embracing social media, YouTube, uh, Facebook, send out sort of like samples to sort of YouTubers and stuff to sort of kind of like review and stuff. Um, and, you know, they started bringing back a load of the sort of kind of old school stuff because they know that people my age and stuff growing up with like squats with it just released and, and things like that. They're like, oh my God, we love these guys. And so, so they're kind of bringing back the nostalgia side of things. And they're being- They've also lot- released- uh, games where you don't need to buy so many figures. Yeah. So things yeah. like Kill Team. Necromunda. Uh, the fact they brought Necromunda back. And uh, certainly Kill Team's really well supported. So obviously oh, things like Blackstone Fortress. So um, yeah, rather than just doing that, we've got uh, 
a box of Warhammer and a box of 40k until we update it and then we'll release these odd games like Battlefleet Gothic or Gorkamorka. There's much more variety and different levels of in investing in it right from the start. I think, I can't remember the different packs of Space Marines, but you've got like Commander or something and it's just different yeah. scales of product. Yeah, yeah, they've really sort of, they have diversified a lot. And the fact that they're sort of kind of like, I, I just hope they bring Epic back again. That's one of my sort of like, I just, <laughs> I just what they bring it. They've got Titanicus, they've got Aeronautica, you know, they just need to put them together and add small toy soldiers and some tanks and I'll have Epic or again and then I'll be happy. And I just like, and just, or and, and Battlefleet, Goth, ba Battlefleet Gothic, I don't understand why they haven't brought that back, especially with the advent of like X-Wing and stuff from Fantasy Flight. I just don't understand why I haven't brought back uh, Battlefleet Gothic because that was such a good game as well. Well, I guess they've done um, Aeronautica Imperialis, haven't they? Yeah. Which is obviously not, not at the same level, but yeah. who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, they, they, they work so many years ahead, it's probably already in the pipeline somewhere. We just haven't heard about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. That is very true. Um, like they were, I remember like people just going, "They're never going to bring the squats back," and I was like, "They'd be fools if they didn't. They'd be fools." And then this we've had zotes. Yeah, <laughs> like sorry, yeah, they brought they had zotes. Anything stuff. goes. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. That, that, that yeah, like zotes is that's insane. So it's uh, yeah, they're really sort of playing on this sort of nostalgia thing and stuff. And I was just like, there's so much stuff they could bring back, and then people would love it. And if they brought back Epic, I just throw all my money. I think I get rid of all my 40k and just go back to Epic and stuff. I uh, love that game. Just loved it. You mentioned you did some writing for the codexes. Was it like you said like color writing or something? Yeah, colour text. So text, um, you wouldn't really call them short stories. Some of them, it's when you looked at, turned a page and there's a particular army type and there'd be a little grey shaded box in the bottom corner, a couple of hundred words. And it was just to give an extra bit of detail or atmosphere. And then every once in a while you get like a double page spread. So I did one in the Wood Elves book about Dirthu, the tree man, sort of awakening. Um, there was kind of, I think I did, i to remember that, but with the Tyranids one, there was one of... I think it was Bill King's short story, which is really good, where somebody finds a Tyranid gun and effectively tries to take them over because it's obviously a living thing, trying to take over the Magos' mine. But they're mine kind of elements of an ongoing battle with a, a world falling to the Tyranids. So it's got everything from effectively a gene stealer cults to a massive battle with space marines and things. So, but yeah, the idea was just to give some flavour. Um, so I suppose one of the things that they say now in fiction is it shouldn't just be a battle report. But sometimes you were kind of writing a fictional battle report. But obviously you had to have whoever was in the codex. They were the ones who were winning. Right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. You're going to buy a codex if they're like, yeah, they're just losers. Yeah. So how's that work with the Imperial Guard? Because they're just cannon fodder. Yeah. 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 I think probably with that, I didn't do the Imperial Guard one, but you probably focus on duty and honor and laying down your yeah. life for your brothers and being a brave hero the rest of it i sort of <laughs> yeah. i i they you know because uh, games workshop the well black library they had like a right they used to do a writer's challenge i'm not sure if they've done it recently or not but they used to have like a writer's challenge and you'd have sort of like these sort of like yeah. certain certain things uh focal points that you had this sort of thing and i was like you know what? i'm just gonna write some fan fiction type thing and that was based on like the praetorian you know the praetorians uh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. The praetorians and um and it was the battle of what was the one thing uh it was kind of basically rourke's drift but it was against the yeah orcs. it was orcs drift, orcs it? drift, it was orcs drift. yeah the orcs <laughs> drift, yeah orcs drift and uh it was basically about uh, a guy who had or no what was there was there was another one there was two of them, so there was the big battle, which was meant to be Islandawana, where they got massacred, and then there was Orcs Drift, which was the one after. It was one where they got massacred, and it was basically a guy who survived, or his father survived it, and um, was basically a bit of pariah, because he had survived, and it's not a very honourable thing to be sort of kind of yeah. one last over, and it was basically about his son, who was sort of a kind of sharp-ass character, who was sort of, um, sort of, he had sort of raised us up, and he was still getting a bit of shit from some of the local commanders and things like that, and he had a, he had a sort of kind of, um, oh, what's, I can't remember the sort of kind of clan I'd given, but he'd had an orc sort of scout. He was one of his mates and stuff. And I, I put a lot of effort into it. And then I was just like, this is going to take me forever. And I went, I'll just, I'll just shelve this. And I think I got, I got about 12 or 13 pages. And then I was just like, yeah, something more and stuff. Yeah, I did a little bit of Imperial Guard with um, some of the novels I wrote for Games Workshop, but there were always a small group of them cut off from everybody else. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So they could kind of, otherwise, like you said, if it was put on the scale of a massive battle, the big battles always had the space rings. Um, 
because I did a couple of um, Armageddon books. So obviously it was everybody versus the orcs. All right. So uh, oh, John, what, what's the one that I read? What's it? Emperor's Gift is the the one that's about the battle. Of, it's got the Battle of Armageddon in it as well. And that's an awesome book. Well, there's yeah. Um, Aaron Dembski Baron did. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember now what it was called. But yeah, he did an Armageddon novel. I think it might well be. Received. I think it might be Emperor's Gift, and that was yeah. so good because it's basically because it's got like. It's got Grey Knights versus the the whole Grey Knights versus Space Wolves thing, which I thought was just mind-blowing and stuff, where they actually came to blows. And it was after the Battle of Armageddon, where basically the Grey Knights were like, right, they've seen us, they can't survive and stuff. And the Grey Knights were all, no, the, the Space Wolves were like, but they helped us win the Battle of Armageddon. Yeah. And the Grey Knights were like, tough. And then, <laughs> we're going to sort of kill them yeah. all. And then it basically comes to a, basically a fight. And uh, Bjorn, Bjorn Fellhander comes out of his hyperstate and goes, shut up and wise up and sort of do your own thing and I was just like oh it's so good so good yeah um so what's what oh, I suppose you said you can't really sort of kind of say what's coming up so I, I can't even say what what, what, what was you... expected release for one in 47 yeah sorry whoa um I think the publishers put August I'm hoping to get it to backers in July it really oh, nice. depends how long it takes the printers to like I say we've got to um, once you've got some quotes that we're happy with and finalised it, it just really depends how long it takes it to print. So it'll be this summer. Uh, it won't be long. Um, and obviously, there have been all sorts of delays. Yeah. And will it reasons. be available for um, as an ebook or or on, on yes. Amazon? Yep. So there'll be a hyperlinked ebook, um, a paperback, and then a limited run of a hardback as well. And do you have any yeah. prices for what they might be? Uh, I'm guessing, but I expect that the paperback will be £10 because that's what they are normally, or £9.99. Beyond that, I'm not sure at this stage, partly because of the, the whole printing costs of and course. because the hardback's full colour. So oh, okay. I, think it's they... terrible. I can't remember what the ebooks sell for, but <laughs> not, not much less than the paperback. Yeah. Do you think yeah. like, the rising cost of paper will kind of make you less likely to kind of go through the paperback route in the future, the physical copies anyway? No, um, I'll have to look at my budgets and how I do it differently. But I think that the part of the reason that people back my things on Kickstarter is because they like the physical product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They like having a nice, yeah. pretty thing. Yeah. And I, I, I'm the same. You know, once I used to only buy paperbacks. And then once I was working full time and had a decent wage, I started to buy hardbacks. And even though sometimes it's been tough, I'm terrible. I have a habit now where I'd much rather buy the hardback than paperback. Um, but when I produce my own hardbacks, I want them to look really attractive on my shelf. So hopefully people are like having them on their shelves. Yeah. So like, certainly the hardbacks become a more collectible object. Yeah. yeah and again, I, I think people like the tactile experience of holding a book. Yeah, 100%. Like, um, I, like I've got um, an Audible sort of um, account and I, I do listen to sort of kind of audio books and stuff, but I'm, I always buy the books. Uh, and it's like if I've got a chance where I've got time to sit there and read... I would prefer to have a a physical sort of kind of book. Like my dad would go through like Kindles and stuff like, and he'd have hundreds of books on these things, and I just couldn't grasp it and stuff. Like it was, it's just just something different about having that physical book in your hand, especially a yeah. hard a hardback book. The thing really, I have about a, you know, it's, sorry, it's another market, and there are people who now have stopped buying physical books because they don't have the space. They'll buy the digital ones. So obviously, it makes sense to do that. But I do have a couple of books or short stories which only exist in a digital format and I can't put them on my writing shelf, which drives me mad because <laughs> it means it's incomplete. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. really like the fact that the, the, the apps, like especially the Tin Man Games apps, kind of put all that number crunching under the hood. Yes. And just leave you to kind of, like, just keep track of your um, stamina, strength and luck. Yeah. And they do the dice running for you automatically. It's just a lovely little kind of um yeah i, I think that's that's a definite advantage and certainly something like ronin 47 is probably the, the one with the most complicated rules because the mech combat is far more complicated than normal combat because you have ranged and close combat and then distance comes into play and you've got armor so it's 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 more complicated than your typical fighting fancy book in that respect but partly because of that and because i know there are people who cheat i used to write game books when i first started out people trying to beat the cheaters because I cheated. So I thought, I'm going to catch these people out. But forgetting that if they're cheating, well, that, that's up to them. They bought the book. 
but it probably means they're enjoying the story and they want to know what happens next. So I now make it explicit in the rules. Well, I try and make it fair to begin with. So if you play fairly, I know I'm playing fair to those people. Uh, but I do actually say, if you want to ignore the dice rolls and everything else, you know, you win every battle, you pass every attribute test, that's fine, but you still might not complete the adventure the first time, depending on the choices you make. Interesting. Remember in Sitting Limestone's uh, Blood Zombies, actually set up where even if they had did the five-finger five bookmark rule, you could set, set you up where you would lose. Right? <laughs> putting the traps in the text, right? you'd go through so many different sections and realise you'd gone six or seven sections, lost track of where you were, and you just couldn't get out of it. Yeah, in that one, you had to kill every zombie as well. So you could get through to the end alive. But if you hadn't killed every zombie in the castle, you failed. Yeah. So that was hardcore. That was a very <laughs> hardcore book. It, 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 it deliberately... I mean, Levinson's books have always been challenging compared to uh, Steve Jackson's, I find. I think they both... I mean, Creature of Havoc was yeah. pretty challenging. Um, Actually, and think about it, so was um, the Starship one. Starship. Yeah, Starship Traveller. And also, but, but people like the early ones I wrote are hard to the point of being possible, unfortunately. Uh, you know, playtesting wasn't as rigorous as it was now. People, I, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in that, um, partly doing, because I've done it through crowdfunding, but there is a team of people around me, although I'm the creator and the producer, I've got different artists, I've got editors, I've got proofreaders, and I've got a brilliant team of playtesters. So, um, you know, they are gone through rigorously to try and eliminate any errors like that to make it fair. But certainly when I was writing for Puffin, um, it, it didn't have quite the same number of people with eyes on it in the same way, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the fact like, you know, writing is, you know, seen as being a solitary activity. And in some ways it is, but also there's a lot of people behind the writer, as you say, like there's the writer, there's the editor and the playtesters. Yeah, I mean, there'll be moments where you know, most of the time I sit by myself at my desk in the morning and then you go to something like UK Games Expo and the guy who does my graphic design came up and said hello and, you know, you see editors and um artists and people who've read the book and enjoy them and, and you're just surrounded by people suddenly immersed in it there's you see hundreds if not thousands of people over the, the weekend so yeah it goes from those two extremes yeah and actually you brought up uk games as well how did you find it i mean this was very much a like a back to normal normalcy for yeah i loved it i mean as it's always my favorite event of the year for all sorts of reasons partly the set well big part of it is the social side um and also I find that my game books sell much better at gaming events than they do at book events. Um, so that's always nice. Uh, but I hadn't been since 2019 because obviously it didn't happen in 2020 or either went online. And then 2021, they kept moving the dates and it clashed so I, I couldn't attend. So I, I'd really missed it. Um, and I had a great time. And it was kind of all I hoped it would be. Excellent, yeah. Okay. Um, um probably gonna have to sort of start wrapping up soon because i've got i've got to i've got to go soon um but, okay um what we kind of do um in our podcasts uh at the end now um is we do sort of kind of a uh name the character sort of kind of thing so we you get 60 seconds so we name a a, a franchise um and obviously you got you've got to think of one to sort of do for us but you name a, th- a franchise that preferably somebody's going to understand and, and know about and stuff so not something obscure yeah. and just going to go i don't understand i like i don't know, like star wars or, or or warhammer or something like that everybody sort of has some sort of knowledge about you name it yeah. you've got to name a character and then we've got to guess it uh and you've got to ask some questions you're going to guess it so um if you can think of one um a franchise um fire away okay <laughs> so think of a character from a franchise obviously a franchise okay. you think we may sort the of first kind of... that sprang to mind is probably too easy that's the trouble um oh no i'll go with it anyway oh well no it's one of those things where you probably I'd, I'd say the franchise and you pick one of two to guess to begin with and one would be the right answer so, <laughs> um, okay. oh oh trying to think now but Okay, well, um, I'll uh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll do one then. So, uh, you're obviously having written for Warhammer, right? Your Warhammer yes. knowledge is sort of, you know, what are you more forty k or fantasy? Oh goodness, I mean, to be honest, it's not what it was, and certainly Age of Sigmar's. Uh, I, I wouldn't do Age of Sigmar. It would be if it was all, you know. 
maybe I'll say 40k. Might get unstuck there. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, uh, Warhammer 40k. Like, so basically, I'll say Warhammer 40k. 60 seconds. Okay. Go, and then you just ask questions, yes or no questions, okay. or about it. You know, you know, and then we'll see what happens. So, Warhammer 40k. 60 seconds. Go. So, is he a space marine? Uh, he is a space marine. Uh, is he a blood angel? He is not a blood angel. He's not an angel. Uh, is um, he? Oh, he's not beyond the fell-handed, is he? It is not beyond <laughs> the fell-handed. Uh, so, uh, no, I lie. He is not technically a space ring. No, he's not a space ring. Oh, is he one of, the, uh, of chaos? He's not chaos, no. Is he okay. a dreadnought? He is not a dreadnought. He's not a space ring. Is he a former space ring? He's marine? not a space ring. Oh. Yeah. He's is not he a, a primarch? He is not is a primarch. He, he is not a primarch. Oh, and but it's something to space marines. Say that again. He's a part of the Imperial Guard. He's not a part of the Imperial Guard. But, he's but he is. He fights for the Imperium. He fights that. for the Imperium. Yes. Uh, a clue. Good clue. He's Horus Heresy era. Are the Inquisitor? He's not an Inquisitor. Oh okay. dear. <laughs> okay. So seconds must be running out. Yeah. So you have got one more question. And then you're going to have a guess. Uh, I'll give you a clue. Um, he is a member, and I'll not tell you who, what they are, because I'm assuming they're a member of the 10,000. The Custodian Guard. I'll say that it's part of the Custodian Guard. Oh, Valdor. Yes. Constant, <laughs> Constantine Valdor. Only because you said that. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Apologies. <laughs> okay, no problem at all. Pete. Give us okay. one. Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Star Wars. Okay. okay. So, Star Wars, 60 seconds. Go. Original trilogy? Pardon? Original trilogy? Yes. The Dark Side? No. Oh. Imperial? Um, um, sorry, Rebel then? Yes. Um, Jedi? Uh, no. Leia? Is it Leia? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy. Because, yeah. As soon because as she kind of started going to she wasn't a Jedi. She's more sensitive. <sighs> yes. But she's not full on Jedi. Yeah. That was sort of the, that's, hence the hesitation. Yeah. So I think in okay. some of the older books and stuff, uh, she did become one. I'm not sure. Yeah, like, the, the ones that aren't canon anymore. They aren't canon. Yeah. They're supposed to expand the universe. 30 seconds. Uh, uh, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, I've got one now if you want to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what what is your franchise? Well, I'll, it kind of narrows it down slightly, but Batman. Okay, so Batman, 60 seconds, go. Um, uh, So we're talking comics or films? Comics. Comics. Are they uh, one of the uh, bad guys or good guys? Bad guys. Um, do they have any? Are there any good guys? (laughs) (laughs) Are they? Um, are they the penguin? No. Are they being? No. (laughs) Uh, are they one of the ringleaders? No. Oh. Are they? Are they a main villain? I'd say yes. Are they in any of the films? I don't think... Oh, no, hang on. I think maybe there is... Oh, no, no, I'm thinking of the TV series. I don't think they're in the films, though. No. But they're in the TV series? I, I think I think there might have been a reference to one, but I I didn't watch Gotham all the way to the end, so I'm pretty sure they mentioned it. Uh, Are they male or female? All right. Uh, male. Right, okay. So one more, one more question. Powers? Sorry? What was do, they, do, do they have any powers? Yes. Okay. So, male, bad guy, potentially named in the series. Um, I hope that's right. <laughs> so, potentially named bad guy, if male. Uh, do you want a clue? Yeah, go on, then give us a clue. Also appeared in the computer games. Oh, that's quite. It's going to. Oh, um. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, had quite a major role in one of the. Games. Oh, uh, uh, Arkham Knight. What's his name? No. Red, ah. <laughs> no. Red Hood. No, because no. he's not a bad guy. Not the hero. Oh. Okay, here's okay. it then. Clayface. Ah. ah. God damn it. Right. Very good. Very good. <laughs> 
Very good. Okay, we'll do one more. So I've got a couple of, uh, a few more TikTok okay. videos I can add I've got, on. I've got one ready. Okay, go on then. Marvel. Okay, Marvel, 60 seconds. Go. Um, Male or female? Male. Powers? <laughs> powers? No. Female, oh. no powers. Uh, have they got a film? Male. No. They don't have a film. Nope. They don't have powers, and it's nope. female. No, male. 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 Okay. J. Jonah Jameson. Nope. Are are they a superhero? Yes. Ah. Oh. Don't have powers. Marvel don't have powers. Don't have a film. Do they have a TV series? No. Oh. Who's got... <laughs> so, not a film, not a TV series. Uh, so, the all... Punisher. Oh, no, he's got... He's got loads series, of films. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's rubbish. That um, uh, so... Nick Fury. Nope. Oh. And they don't have powers. Oh, fuck. Is he a good guy? Did we do that one? Mostly. 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 So he's an anti-hero then. Okay, right. Start. Okay, one more guess. Do you work for S.H.I.E.L.D.? Um, every now and then. <laughs> oh. Oh, God, no. It's not going to be... It's not going to be Deadpool because he's got powers. Um, and then oh. some... Uh, yeah. Ah, oh, fuck. This is going to be something really obvious, isn't it? It's going to frustrate me. Um, <laughs> give us a clue, man. Go on, give us a clue. Um, they have the Super Soldier Serum. Is it Bucky? You're very close. Is it the Winter Soldier? Oh, no. The, the oh, what's his US agent? No. Ah, oh, who is it? Nomad. Jack Monroe. Ah, uh, <laughs> right. You, oh. you you complained to me last time that I was being too obvious. I know, but that was like really <laughs> obscure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good one. Nice one, man. Stomped on all of them. God damn it. <laughs> okay. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much, well, thank you uh, Jonathan. Thank uh, you. Apologies, can't go on for much longer. Uh, longer, unfortunately, time has run out for me. Um, but it's appreciate. Have you got anything that you want to pimp out at this moment in time? Yes, um, we've got to celebrate forty years of the Warlock of Fartap Mountain. We're having Fighting Fantasy Fest four on Saturday, the third of September. It's taking place at the University of West London in Ealing. Um, so tickets are on sale now. So come along. Meet your heroes, meet the artists, authors. There's a film screening, there'll be panels, there'll be a painting demonstration, gaming sessions going on, traders, all sorts. Brilliant. Well, Excellent. that's great uh, for tonight. I've been Matt Geary. With me has been Peter Ray Ellison. Good night, everyone. And Jonathan Green. Thank you very much. Good night.